0: I think I'm entitled You want I Want the Truth! You can't handle the truth.
1: Hello again, Free Thinkers, and welcome to another episode of the Free Thought Project Podcast. I'm Jason Bassler, and today joining me is the Free Thought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agarist. Also joining us is Meme Lord Supreme, Mr. John Parker. We have a powerful conversation lined up today. But before I introduce our guests, I'd like to remind you to please like this episode, subscribe to our channel, and if you have a moment, please review our podcast.
2: I have a strong belief that helping one person might not change the whole world, but it could change the world for that one person. Transparency with policing is vital to maintain order, and that is something that everybody should want.
1: Our guest today is Officer Jody B. She's a whistleblower cop who was fired for exposing corruption within her ranks. Jody has been a certified law enforcement officer for over 13 years in Central Florida area. She has proactively served with a variety of capacities including road patrol officer, specialized traffic unit, community relations, public information officer, grant writer, and extra duty coordinator. Jody has also managed a special crime watch unit and served as the executive director of the Police Activities League for 10 years. Her vision for transparent policing, as well as enlightening the public about the human side of police officers, is the focus and primary goal of her career. Welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast, Officer Jody. So you and I have been talking on Facebook for a while now. Uh, originally, you reached out to Police the Police because you were frustrated after blowing the whistle in your own department and being ignored and ridiculed, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, Right around the same time, you're also slated to do a TED Talk called Policing the Police, which is a cool name, by the way. Um, (laughs) Do you mind sharing with us how that came about and what experience uh, that was like for you and what you focused on?
2: Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, and we have been talking for quite a while. Um, So I definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk today. As far as TED Talk, um, I was approached by several different people to do a um, some sort of public speaking event to talk about my feelings on ethical policing. And I've often talked about it, probably for the entire duration of my 14-year career. So I welcomed the opportunity, I accepted it, and we did the TED Talk in Winter Park. So um, what I spoke about at the TED Talk was My feelings on how if you choose to go into the career of law enforcement, you accept the responsibility of uh, helping others. Um, I I have a heart of service, and I was raised that way, to have a heart of service and to help others in need. And I know a lot of people that go into that line of work, they end up in different genres, whether it's being a physician or a social worker. But I come from a family of law enforcement, so I always had the reinforced idea that I, too, would intern for law enforcement. So I've kind of followed through my entire career with making sure that I protect the rights of others and help others uh, as I see fit. And that's what I based my TED Talk on, was the human side of law enforcement officers that are like-minded
0: just wondering if you could, just you know, for our audience, just go over sort of what happened in the case. I see that uh, you objected to an officer who had used excessive force on a gentleman, and I see yeah. that the department the department didn't I- immediately launch an investigation. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the case and what does you, what made you decide to speak out about this particular incident.
2: Okay, well, uh, first off, I am in regular contact with the family, and they're okay with me utilizing the name of the defendant, which his name is Eduardo Ramirez, and the case actually held back from um, February of 2019. So um, the incident originally involved myself and another officer that have responded to um, a call for service at a park, um, a small recreation park in the city that I was um, patrolling. So I was the second officer on the scene, and when I arrived, it was myself, um, the first initial officer that responded, and the defendant, as well as three juvenile witnesses that were there, and a dog. The um, the owner, Eduardo Ramirez, had a, a dog that had escaped from his yard across the street into the park. So when I came onto the scene, I didn't really know what was going on. It seemed like it was a bit chaotic, and I stood by with the kids and talked to the kids about what was going on. Basically, what they told me was that when they had seen a dog running across the street from a home into the park, they were walking towards the park, and they saw a man running into the park to be what looked like they thought was chasing the dog, which he was, and they asked if he needed help, and he said, yes, I'm trying to get my dog. So... I guess at the same time, the officer, the first responding officer, showed up and saw a man running. And, of course, he you know, thought it was suspicious, 9.30 at night. And the park was pretty dark. And they've had incidents at that same park before with people breaking into concession stands and breaking fences and you know, typical things that happen in public recreation parks and stuff like that at night. So he made contact with the individual, and that was Eduardo Ramirez, and found that he had history with him in the past And he knew that he had been trespassed in the past from the park. So I guess what had happened between the time that he came across him and the kids and the time that he called out on the radio for backup, I arrived. I didn't know what was going on because I had run code to get there based on the urgency and the officer's voice calling for backup. So when I got there, they were in a verbal argument and The officer had his hands on the defendant and I was just trying to understand from what the kids were saying and from what was going on with the officer and the defendant trying to decipher what's going on so I really didn't know at the moment so during that that incident there was an altercation that occurred between the defendant and the officer and I observed um, what I in my opinion is excessive force and I had was not near the officer, so it's not as if I could intervene. I was 150 feet away, basically intercepting any kind of action that could occur between the arresting officer, the defendant, and the kids, because these kids were 15 and 16 years of age. So um, in light of that, I couldn't intervene. I turned around. I had a body cam that was activated, and I filmed what was going on. So that was now 10 o'clock at night. And then um, several other officers had shown up that were from the local jurisdiction, not ours, but another one, and um, trying to, you know, help. And the defendant was in handcuffs at the time of the physical altercation, so he couldn't defend himself. And he actually was begging me to take him to the jail, and I told him I would. And the other officer said, no, you're not, and he took him uh, to the jail. And so I basically was at this point now with just the three juveniles and taking their statements and then ended up, you know, going back on road patrol for the rest of the evening. And then in the morning was approached by my chief asking if I had been in a fight. Oh, I heard you were in a fight. No, sir, I was not in a fight. That was the other officer. So at that point, I already knew that he was aware of what happened and, you know, assumed because that's what you do—you assume that things are going to be handled appropriately and properly. And I didn't question him, and that was the end of my shift, so I just went home.
0: I also—I I also notice in the report it says that the city manager Jim Gleason said that he was satisfied with the outcome of the investigation. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, you know your feelings on uh, what the, what the investigation entailed, and uh, if you if you agree with his assessment?
2: Well, the investigation didn't occur until approximately four months after the incident because when I made contact with the local state attorney's office about when I would be depositioned or called in order to testify as far as my body cam, they had no idea that there was an existence of a body cam. They didn't have uh, they didn't even have me on the list as a witness, but I asked the state attorney or the assistant state attorney how could you not have me as a witness? Did you read the report? He said, well, can you hold on a second? Because, you know, they obviously have a very large caseload, and this isn't a very monumental case. You know, it's not anything um, like a bank robbery or, you know, a high call um, uh, incident. So he didn't read the report. Well, when we were, I was on hold, he read the report, and he said, wow, you're named in the report as actually physically taking the defendant down to the ground. And I didn't know that, that it had actually said that, because when normally during an arrest at the agency that I was at, we would take the defendant back to the um, police department, type up the report, and then transport them to the local jail, so we would have privy to see what the actual uh, affidavit said. But because that particular night, that officer chose to take the defendant himself he did not transport to the police department. He went right to the jail, typed his report at the jail, and I didn't see it. So now, the,
0: the investigation that took place, was that an internal investigation conducted by the department? Or did the department refer to another agency and have an outside agency come in and conduct the investigation?
2: It's done internally because in the state of Florida, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement governs law enforcement agencies when it comes to internal affairs investigations, but that is only after a law enforcement agency requests assistance by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So if an agency takes it upon themselves to conduct their own investigation, and they do not ask for assistance by FDLE, then it is only done internally. So this one was done only internally.
1: And so so
3: the outcome of that was that they found that you were at fault? And and you uh, violated the department policy uh, and violated yeah. a citizen's rights. Is that is that is that, is that what I read no. correctly?
2: No, I, I wasn't involved at all um, because shortly after the whole incident happened in February, I was terminated in April. So I wasn't part of any internal affairs investigation. I wasn't part of any proper termination. I wasn't part of anything other than you know, being a whistleblower and trying to get the attention of the authorities that I felt should be involved in, you know, properly um, following guidelines for defendants as far as, you know, their rights. And the fact of the matter is the, the actual um, trespassing notice was seven years old, so it had already long expired. So essentially the individual that was arrested was, you um, detained and falsely arrested based on an expired um, trespass notice as it is. So that, in and amongst itself, is something that I felt was, you know, rather important to show people that if it were me, if, if I could turn back time and, and make it so that I was the responding officer, my response would have been you know, because I am much older, I do have a lot more life experience, I do have a lot more um, tenure in the position versus this officer, I believe at the time was maybe three years along. I would have made contact with the defendant, you know, obviously run his criminal history to check to see who I'm dealing with on scene, you know, for my safety, and asked him "Well, what he was doing. He would have answered, oh, I was getting my dog, I live across the street. The three kids would have confirmed that because that's what they told me when I arrived, and I would have sent him on his merry way because I would have seen that there was a trespass, but after one year, it expires. So we're talking about something that had occurred, as, as I believe he was 16 years of age when he had been trespassed seven years prior. So, you know, the whole thing could have been avoided altogether. And therefore, my termination probably would have not occurred because I spoke up. So, you know, it's, it's the kind of situation that nobody ever wants to have to deal with. And when you're in law enforcement, you really hope that the people that you work with are going to do the right thing. And sometimes they
1: don't. So you were named as being involved in the altercation by the responding officer, um, but your body camera would have shown otherwise. Uh, So is that something that, from your experience, tends to get overlooked? Or does it kind of depend on the severity of the incident as to uh, when body cam is actually reviewed?
2: I think that it's only brought to the attention of the decision-makers when, first of all, the officer is aware that anyone's raising that question. Secondly, especially when they're aware that the information that has been given to others is incorrect. I didn't know that I was named as the individual that physically placed her hands on the defendant. I didn't know that until a month later when I made contact with the state attorney and I actually reviewed the, um, the originating affidavit from the ar- arresting officer, I didn't know that it said my name as the person that physically touched him. I wasn't, the only time that I ever touched him was when I lifted him off the ground, which three or four months later, the affidavit was rewritten and it stated that I, I lifted the defendant off the ground. So basically what happened was after I raised the question about excessive use of force, they went back to the drawing table, watched the body cam, and rewrote the affidavit based on the body cam footage.
0: It, do you know if that body camera footage is going to be made public, uh, assuming, you know, after the lawsuit is filed and resolved?
2: It was made public. Channel 13 News uh, reporter Stephanie Cowanow actually was able to obtain the copy of the body cam from... City Manager Jim Gleason, who has since been um, arrested. He was arrested this past week for um, felony battery on a fellow city council member at a meeting this week. So she was able to get the, the tape, and it was aired on Channel 13 News.
1: Sounds like a real winner.
2: Yeah. yeah. You, you Unfortunately, when you have people like that in a position of power as far as the city manager, because the city manager is the number one officer of that city, they're the CEO of that city, They're above the police chief. They're the ones that make the decision as to who they hire as far as the police chief is concerned. And this is the kind of person that that city has placed an employee and subsequently terminated based on his battery this week. So that's been on the news as well. And um, you know, me from speaking to other law enforcement officers at neighboring cities that have dealt with this particular city manager in the past because he has been a city manager at local cities and he's had other issues extending from those cities people are aware of his ongoing behavior and um, you know I think when you have somebody in a position like that they will overlook things that go awry in their police agencies because that's the kind of person that they have um, you know become they they don't they don't tend to follow all of the rules and regulations and policies that are set in place to protect their
3: constituents
1: Clearly, yeah. I mean, we we, uh, we certainly cover stories about uh, what you know have been deemed gypsy cops, moving from one department to the other after they've um, either committed crimes or done something illegal, been fired for one reason or another. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's really no surprise that even uh, this applies to city managers as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. As far as when people talk about gypsy cops, cause I've heard that before. You know, if you look at my, um, in the state of Florida, it's called the ATMS Global Profile Sheet, which is the profile sheet that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement maintains on all law enforcement officials in the state. So if you look at my personal ATMS, I look like a gypsy cop because I have been a whistleblower in the past and currently am, and so I get run off. So, you know, it's not always um, so easy to analyze um, documentation on law enforcement officers and just completely know 100% that the person that you're looking at is a bad cop. I look like I could possibly be a bad cop on paper and I've had people tell me that, that they don't feel comfortable, you know, employing me because they see that I moved from one agency and then 18 months later I was uh, terminated and then, and then I was employed again with another agency. And, you know, so it, it doesn't, it's not always something that that officer has done Wrong. Sometimes we speak up and we get terminated um, based on the fact that we are trying to follow our oath and do the right thing, and decision makers see this as as a threat, and so they will find a way to get rid of us.
3: That's a shame. (laughs) And now you're having to sue the city just to clear your name, right? And uh, under the Whistleblowers Act?
2: I did. I did. um, You know, this is the problem with um, officers being whistleblowers is that. They, there is a law that's called the Officer's Bill of Rights that protects law enforcement officials from retaliatory acts by their agencies, but it doesn't mean that the agencies don't retaliate because they have taxpayers' money in the offer to pay attorneys and city attorneys and League of cities in order to defend themselves, whereas law enforcement officers on, on their own don't. So we end up having to foot the bill out of our pocket to defend ourselves, and we don't have the kind of money to fight cities. So I did initiate a lawsuit uh, against the first city that terminated me for being a whistleblower back in 2007, and wasn't able to continue on because I couldn't afford the attorney's fee. So that I had to drop. Then during this whistleblower case, I again had to pay for an attorney out of my pocket, couldn't continue the, the fight because I just don't have the means and had to drop the key. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but we are not in a position where we make a lot of money. You know, I started out in uh, 19, I'm sorry, 2006, making $11 and I believe it was like eleven twenty an hour or something like that. So, you know, it's not something you're going to get rich at and it's not something that you can afford to shell out. Tens of thousands of dollars to protect yourself.
0: Sure, it's it's unfortunate. It's uh, we've had the opportunity to speak with many whistleblowers over the years, and this is actually a really common refrain: is uh, they get the revenge coming back at them. You know, you guys crossed the thin blue line, and now your fellow officers are trying to throw you under throw you under the bus. One thing I would ask is, in your opinion. Do you think that the presence of outside investigations, having someone from a state office or a federal office coming in, do you think that that would help people in your position a little bit more?
2: Well, it's not that it wouldn't help. It obviously would to have an impartial person from outside looking in. But the problem is uh, a lot of the people that are in government offices have ties to people that are in other government offices. It's a very small world. you know. On, on the average, a typical person says, well, we have six degrees of separation, right? Well, within law enforcement, I would say it's two. So I can talk to somebody in New York, um, and they have a friend that knows a friend of mine. So there's, there's always going to be a very close affiliation, whether it's DOJ, or, you know, a local agency or a county agency or a state agency or, or you know, federal um, or going to, you know, looking at people that are, work in courthouses. We all have a very close affiliation, and a lot of people that are even in state attorneys, you know, have gone to law school with a criminal defense attorney, um, you know, somewhere else in the United States. I've seen it time and time again when I have a conversation with a friend with a criminal defense attorney about something. And, I, and they ask, well, who's the prosecutor? And I say, oh, yeah, my, my best friend in New York went to college with them in California. So, you know, it's, it's very close as far as the proximity for people knowing one another. And that makes it even more difficult to get any kind of prosecutorial action against people that um, are corrupt. It's, it's
3: very sad. I think that that might be like an underlying problem in there. And and with the protectionism inside it, um, well, I wrote an article last week. There was a cop in Colorado Springs, Sergeant Keith Reed. He um, he was found to be going on Facebook under his personal profile and in like some other sock accounts that he had created and writing like "kill them all" under videos of protesters and stuff like this. And some of these were peaceful protesters. It wasn't like the looting and stuff that we're seeing. And mm-hmm. um, he was. Uh, given a five-day uh, suspension and then just um, another back put put back on duty, and I I wrote this article I contrasted that with um, another cop, um, a Greensboro Police Department officer Williams who went to TikTok after. Um, the George Floyd video came out and all he did, this, this officer, George Floyd, kind of like what you do is just encourage cops to be good. You know, (laughs) that's all he did. Mm -hmm. He he made a video on TikTok to encourage officers to be good. He didn't say anything like bad. He didn't name anybody. He didn't do anything. And he he was fired for that. And Sergeant, uh, Reed who advocated for mass murder, you know, under his badge was actually, you know, they, his chief went to bat for him and defended him. And, um, And this is like that. This is seems to be like the underlying problem. And this happens like this is not just an isolated case. We've we've reported on lots of cases like this where it's it's just protectionism, you know, and, and we've had some people uh, that we've interviewed. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. He's an officer out of Baltimore. You know, he mm-hmm. was trying to blow the whistle on his department and like they were going to kill him. They were putting dead rats on he and his wife's cars um, in the mornings. And I mean, it was like some scary mafia movie type stuff that was going on. <laughs> And um, oh, yeah. so like I know a, a, an independent investigation is obvi- is the obvious answer at first but what do you think could help to change this um this paradigm of of the protectionism it seems like so you're having a problem getting an attorney for to to defend yourself against what you call an unlawful firing however if you were fired for say shooting somebody and um it was a disputable shooting the union would pay for your lawyer and and <laughs> right. And so, I mean, I think that you should, you know, you you try to do the right thing and you had to pay for your own lawyer. But if someone kills somebody and they're fired, then they get a union appointed lawyer and then and that doesn't have to come out of their pocket. So what, what <laughs> do you think that we need to do to, to to try to shift away from this paradigm of this protectionism? And then the like the protectionism of, of these clearly bad officers that are, you know, that, that have no problem wearing it on their sleeve and on social media and everything else.
2: That's a really, really good question, and it's something that I've talked about and tried to come up with some sort of solution over the past decade, um, because, again, um, I've been in this type of whistleblower case, um, not just this one, but others, pretty much since I got sworn in back in uh, June of 2006. Uh, my my very first whistleblower case happened within, I believe, 12 days of being cut loose on my own as an independent officer after field training. Um, so, you know, this is a long history that I've had since the beginning of my career that I see people conducting themselves inappropriately, and as soon as I go to say anything, I'm pointed out as the bad one, and I'm seen as a threat. Um even, even so recently, I had a, a police captain from a neighboring agency tell me, um, shortly after I was terminated from the agency we're talking about right now, he told me a week after I was terminated, we know who you are, we're not interested in you, you're not employable as a cop any longer. And, you know, I gracefully thanked him for his candor. I wasn't disrespectful to him. I said, sir, you know, I appreciate you take in the time to talk to me and be upfront. You know, I, I didn't want to waste my time applying to your agency if you feel that you don't want a good cop in your midst. And I hung up. So as far as, you know, how can we combat this kind of protectionism for bad cops, there, there really is only one answer, and that's for um, organizations like yours that have come to the forefront and, you know, spoken about this kind of thing to – have an opportunity for good officers to call in, make anonymous reports, um, maybe have some opportunity to apply for personal legal grants to protect themselves, because unions aren't going to do it. I was told by my union rep when I was terminated last year because of this to go away. I was told that I can't fight the monster. That's coming directly from my union rep. And my response to that was, you got to be kidding me. I've been paying you guys dues since I was sworn in in 2006, and this is your response? You know, it's not acceptable. And it's unfortunate because people such as myself, and, and look, by no means am I ever looking to be pinpointed as a martyr or some sort of special person. I, I just believe in the United States Constitution. I'm a constitutionalist, um, very staunch protector of rights and I don't believe that the people that law enforcement officers serve should have their rights violated in any form or fashion. And I'm a citizen myself, first and foremost. So I want to see officers take that oath and really, really understand that they're speaking on behalf of the public under the guise of the Constitution and that everything that they do in their day-to-day job should be with the understanding that we're not to violate people's rights, period. It's actually a pretty simple concept, and it seems to be one that's been muddled through all these years uh, of policing, and we need to get back to the basics and let these uh, new people that come into law enforcement understand the paramount responsibility they carry to protect other people, you know? That's, that's really what it's about. It's just getting back to those basics.
0: Yeah, and I before we jumped on this call, I actually watched your TED Talk, and I remember a part of it where you uh, discussed education requirements for police do you, do you believe that you know having officers being required to have a master's degree or a minimum of a bachelor's degree do you think that that would also help in this case?
2: I absolutely think that professionalizing law enforcement is paramount and getting better qualified uh, individuals, and people that are more apt to understand um, the mindset of the general public because I think when you get a lot of these people to come in, first of all, you know it's a male-dominated position. You know, very very few women want to go into policing, so that needs to change on top of the education requirements. It needs to change to have more opportunities for females to be, um, you know, raised up to want to go into policing you know and a lot of it has to do with you know women have this mindset that it's very brutal and that it's very physical and women are socially conditioned to be more nurturing and more you know protective as far as raising children and things like that and so the concept needs to be kind of garnered from a young age to get people to understand that policing is social service you are a frontline social servant yes you wear a gun on your head. But first and foremost, your position should be, how can I help that person? What can I do to connect the dots for that person that I'm coming in contact with? I've gone into the policing, um, you know, with that mindset. And so that makes me a little bit of a different animal altogether. I've met a lot of people that go into it, you know, straight out of high school. They have a high school diploma. Or they come straight out of high school into the military and then go into policing. So the mindset is different than what I think it needs to be in order to produce law enforcement officers that are better suited to serve the public in a social service kind of mindset.
1: Police the Police, the Facebook page, we often hear uh, from disgruntled police supporters that uh, we personally should just join the local department and try to change the police culture from the inside, And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, referring back to what you were just saying, it sounds like it's a case closed on that one. It sounds like there's too many hurdles and issues with that being the easy, simple solution. Um, Now, Johnny just touched on uh, requirements for becoming a police officer, but what Mm -hmm. would you have to say as far as training? Uh, Do you believe that your training was sufficient? Is, in general, the six-month minimum, is that something that you believe should be expanded upon? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, the training that I went through in 2006 has pretty much stayed the same. Um, it's approximately 22 weeks. And, and I'm speaking of the state of Florida. I can't speak to the rest of the country, um, but here in Florida, it's approximately 22 weeks, uh, 700, I believe it's 740 hours of training in the police academy. And then once you graduate the academy, and then you take the state exam and you have to pass that, um, you know, there's a barrage of other things that you go through to get sworn in at an agency. You know, one agency might have a 12-week standard field training program, which I'm a field training officer myself, so I can speak to the knowledge about training new officers coming in. Um, Most agencies are at 12 weeks. I know here in Central Florida and Orange County, I believe they have 20... Um, and I think it's 20 to 24 weeks of added training before a deputy sheriff is cut loose on their own. Um, you know, the training that law enforcement agencies do, a lot of it is based on how their leadership is set. If their leadership is set to a mindset of community policing, then they're going to see more emphasis placed upon, you know, that social service mindset. Um Whereas if it's an agency that maybe only feels that 12 weeks is necessary and they don't have a very high call volume, they might set their standard to a different standard. So I think having a national standard um, training related to how to deal with mental illness and, you know, how to point people in the right direction for social services, that might be something that can alleviate some of the issues that we have. But really, I mean, to be honest, it's such a large, large, vast amount of problems that exist right now. It's going to be a long time in the making before we can really come to a final resolution on how we can fix the problems right now. It's just, to me, it feels insurmountable only because I faced it directly myself with trying to get help, um, you know, and had the doors slammed in my face from so many different people, whether it was the state attorney or the FCLE public integrity unit or the state integrity unit or the FBI, or DOJ, you know, compliance. I've had my face slammed into every door that I've tried to open since the onset. So, you know, for me, it feels like the challenges are so great that I've I've talked to Jason about this. He knows the days that I had that were very dark where I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm walking away. And it's very emotional because a lot of us, you know, we've invested our um, our lives into this to try to help other people, and it gets very frustrating.
3: I can imagine. And um, like speaking of training, we there's a video going around right now that shows some pretty poor training, um, in my opinion, and I'm sure you've seen it, or if you haven't seen it, you've seen the result of what uh, came after in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, when uh, Jacob Blake was just killed yesterday. I don't know if you Did you see that? We'd be remiss I if we didn't ask you about
2: that. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm very sorry. I unfortunately have been like an ostrich lately where I have kind of been not really watching the news and and just trying to recenter myself personally in my life because I've come to the conclusion that, you know, with all the fighting that I've done for a defendant, um, you know, I my career is pretty much done. So I don't really focus um a lot of energy on all these things that have come out recently i've I've kind of just followed a new path and and i'm going in a different direction with my life so i i'm very sorry i'm not i'm not familiar with that
3: it. no it's okay yeah i i mean that's good i wish i was able to do that sometimes <laughs> i just put my head in sand and i mean i'd have to do it. we jason and i and johnny we have to take breaks from this because uh you know what we do is just the same day over and over and over again all this negativity and we try to shine some positive light into this as much as we can you know but it uh sometimes you just need to disconnect for a little while and i, I totally yeah. understand that um, yeah i get that but uh, i mean so what happened was that J- jacob blake was it was police were responding to a domestic dispute we haven't been told why uh if he was involved at all in it but it was a short video that happened and he was walking into his car while well, he was walking away from police. I, apparently, he wasn't complying with them. And he was unarmed. And they they shot him seven times in the back as in front of his three little children. And so that was, uh. I mean, naturally, people went to protest, but it's gotten out of hand. And, you know, they the people destroyed a lot of the town. And uh, it's yeah, it's just pretty sad. And that's something that we do not condone. We do not condone any type of, you know, destruction of property or anything like that. When yeah. when they were protesting George Floyd and they they focused the like spray paint and everything to the same, to the um to the actual police department, that was mm-hmm. a little bit more justifiable than you know going down to the local car dealership and setting on setting cars on fire or whatever. You know that's just we don't you know that's not going to garner any support for your cause or anything like that. Um, yeah, but what what's your what is your um, your views on like the protests or anything like that? I know you're not you know specifically following individual cases, but as far as, you know, like the current mentality or sentiment in the country right now where there's there's daily protests, you know, in multiple cities across the country. And there's even riots and fires in several of them, including one here. They, I mean, I live in where I live is a very small town and um, police shot a man in the back on Friday night and they um, the citizens of my town have been protesting nightly. And then last night they actually blocked the road to my neighborhood and they looted a store and like there's never been any looting here ever before it's just it's uh it's pretty crazy what is uh what's what are your what do you how do you feel about all this the current state of affairs in the country right now with all this going on
2: well you know if you look at the history of protesting from back to the very beginning of protesting first of all there's always that mob mentality right i mean you've got a group of people that have a, a initially a very organized thought process as far as how they can impact positive change in the community. And, you know, they don't, I don't think they necessarily go into it with the the mindset that they're going to destroy and damage and, you know, pillage and and light things on fire. And I don't think they go into it with that mindset. I think they go into it with the level of frustration that, um, you know, they want to see a positive impact. They want to see a positive change. And so they go to the streets with signs and, you know, with the, with the thought that well, maybe if we, if we chance and we peacefully protest and we bring attention to this matter, maybe someone will help us make that positive impact, right? But when, once it starts to get a little bit um, out of control and people that aren't part of the initial planning process show up because they want to be part of something greater and bigger than themselves and they want to see changes, Um, It gets out of control. It becomes that mind, uh, the mob um, mentality. And it it gets to the point where it is now, where the level of frustration has reached beyond capacity, and they start to destroy their communities. I don't think that that's really what they set out to do. Um, I will say this, that I don't condone people hurting other people, period. I don't care... If it's, you know, me having to put my hands on somebody because I need to gain control of them, I, I do everything I can to not hurt that person and not get hurt myself. I believe that, you know, for every action, there is a reaction. And if I conduct myself appropriately, I'm respectful to people that I surround um, in my day-to-day life and at work, and I talk to somebody Um, You know, sometimes people aren't, you can't talk to them. They're busy screaming at you and calling you all kinds of names and, you know, they want to hurt you and they're coming at you and they're on drugs. You know, you can't communicate with them. Sometimes you're put in a position where you have to react. But the majority of the time that I've experienced myself, because I can't speak for other people, you know, I've been able to walk up to somebody that I could see was agitated and I can talk to them and I can talk them down and they see I'm not a threat because I'm talking to them softly. Um, maybe I smile, you know, when I approach the scene. And, and I know there's a lot of cops out there that if they listen, they're going to laugh. Like, oh, she's crazy. I'm not going to walk up and smile at someone. You know, but a lot of times it's worked for me. It's worked for me to disarm someone, to, to make them, realize I'm not there to hurt them. I'm not there to, to hit them. I'm not there to yell at them. I just want to know what's wrong. So I can try to fix the problem, try to help them, try to get them put in the right direction. Um, I just think people are so frustrated. They've they've reached the point of capacity where they cannot function any longer, and that they the only thing they want is change, and the only way they can see that change is by creating this uh, riot, you know, and and destruction. They they've just become so frustrated. It's really what it is. They have no other outlet.
3: That's uh, that's incredible. That that's your um, point of view. There, it shows a great level of empathy. And um, I'm guaranteeing you that that's not that that other that the majority of the police departments out there do not share that view. But if they did, we would not be they would not be rioting right now. Um, Very glad we had you on here for that. I mean, that what you just said was uh, was eye opening. And um, I appreciate that you have that level of empathy where you're able to see that protesters, they, they, they they it just evolves into that. You know, like Martin Luther King said, where the riot is the voice of the unheard. And I mean, that's what that's what we think is going on there. There's obviously some bad actors out there who who don't even care and probably don't even know the name of the person that the people are protesting over. And they they they're just criminals who use this to exploit the situation for personal gain. But um, like you said, I think the overwhelming majority of these people are just they get into this mob mentality when they're out there. They think that they're going in. They, they go in there with peaceful intentions and then it just escalates from there. And oftentimes it's provoked, you know, where where we've seen in several situations where the peaceful protesters have been tear gassed or, um, or shot with rubber bullets, and it's for, there's no crime being committed. There's like an arbitrary curfew imposed for like 6 p.m. or something, and if they don't disperse immediately, then tear gas is used, and this kind of tends to provoke people into reacting and and or kettling, you know, or the, the tactic of people pushing people into little small circles, and then, I mean, it's, it's like it's essentially trying to provoke, and, and I can understand where the, where the the mentality of those people who are already out there protesting such injustices, and when they feel like they're even being oppressed even more while trying to express this, that they can and will react with with uh, violence. But never do, never would I ever justify that.
2: Right. There are always going to be opportunists in any category, and that's inclusive of rioting. So you know, and again, yeah, there are a lot of uh, a lot of law enforcement officers out there that don't agree with my mindset, and I've been labeled you know, with the scarlet letter <laughs> uh, essentially as being an outsider, as being, you know, against the thin blue line. And I think a lot of people have such a bad um, view of even that word the, or, you know, that the connotation of the thin blue line. And when I, you know, growing up in law enforcement myself, as I said, you know, my dad worked for the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department for 26 years. So, and my mom worked for, um, for the former uh, chief um, of Los Angeles Police Department. So, that growing up from a very, very young age, two, three years of age, walking through sheriff's departments and things, you know, I my mindset is maybe different than somebody else, and so I can't speak to the thought process of others, but my mom always raised me, and you, if you watch my TED Talk, you'll see that I talk about my mom in there, she always raised me to have a heart of service and to protect people that are weaker. So. I've never gone into this with the thought process of, oh, you know, I'm going to hook them and book them. I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not that kind of person. I'm more of a, um, you know, what can I do to alleviate this person's stress in their life? What can I do to maybe impact them in a positive manner? And I've gotten thank you cards, and I've gotten people dropping off, um, you know, flowers as a thank you to me at you know previous agencies. I've gotten phone call years later in fact I got a phone call last month from a gentleman that I helped find his lost dog from 10 years ago through the sheriff's office he tracked me down through the sheriff's office they called me and it was really it was really sweet and and brought us both to tears because the puppy that I had helped him find 10 years ago had just passed away so he wanted to say thank you that he had gotten a new dog and he wanted me to meet his new dog and it was very sweet So, you know, it's things like that that really impact me as a person as a police officer is to leave that positive impact in somebody's mind about policing. And I think with everyone thinking that the thin blue line means one thing when in my mind it doesn't. It it doesn't mean that I'm separating myself as a special person being a police officer. It doesn't mean that I'm separating myself from the general public with that thin blue line. To me, that thin blue line means that I've taken an oath to protect and serve the people that are in my community and that that blue line is what separates a person that has a heart of service from an individual that wants to harm that person. That's what it means to me. And it might have been skewed by some people that have, you know, an opposing thought process, and that's what people dislike. They don't like that mentality of, I'm better than you because I wear blue. And so, you know, there are a lot of cops out there that feel the way I do. I have a lot of friends that empathize with my position, but they keep silent because they know if they speak up like I do, they're going to be blackballed because that's what I'm, that's what my position is turned. I'm I'm blackballed. You know, when you're a blackball, you cannot get into law enforcement again. You have been outed and you've been labeled and you've been targeted from uh, other officials and they don't want that. They want to continue on in their careers. So they'll keep silent. And it's very sad and it's unfortunate, but I understand their position because, you know, I have an alternative. Again, I you know, I do have an advanced education and I have alternatives um, in other careers, whereas they don't. So I have to
1: of that a wow. I'm glad that you took a second to kind of clear that up. And from my understanding, that was the original tension intention of the thin blue line flag. Um, it feels like it's been kind of distorted and perverted at this point. But sure. um, with your history within law enforcement and also um, family being in the profession for so many years, do you feel like there was a turning point Uh, where the mindset of law enforcement changed kind of drastically within police culture, Um, because some people would point to maybe around the same time the DOD 1033 program came around, which was uh, basically the Department of Defense transferring uh, military equipment to local police departments like MRAPs. Um, And some people feel like that's kind of when the mentality of police changed to kind of look at civilians more like their enemy and um, I feel like now, as you had mentioned, a lot of people look at the, the thin blue line flag as almost like the flag of the occupying force. And uh, if, if, they didn't, if police didn't want to be looked at as being an occupying force, they shouldn't be um, representing their own flag, to a sense. So do you remember a time where things kind of shifted, or um, has it been kind of gradual?
2: You know, I, a lot of people have asked me that. Um and I there isn't any particular action or moment in time that I can pinpoint to the T that says to me that this is where it's changed. I think it has been a gradual change. and look, we all understand that law enforcement is paramilitary. It has always been paramilitary, and that thought process isn't necessarily set in, in place to, differentiate itself between a civilian and a police officer as far as good versus bad. That's not, that's not what the intent is. It's all about um, the discipline required in order to fulfill that role in society. So, you know, I'm army um, and I, I came out of the military going into policing and understanding the hierarchy and the protocol or how to respond to chain of command and policies and procedures, rules and regulations, state statutes. You know, you come out with this discipline that is in alignment with the paramilitary organization of law enforcement. I don't think that the intention um, with the utilization of equipment from the military was set into place in order to divide and conquer. I think it is just. Uh, you know, an opportunity for law enforcement agencies to um, help save on costs to constituents in the communities, because again, you know, these are not for-profit organizations. Police agencies are public-funded organizations based on local tax bases, right? They're also based on uh, line-item opportunities for grant funding through the Federal Department of Justice, you know, DOJ, and, and grant services, the grants, grant and things like that, because I've written grants before. I'm a grant writer as well, and a public information officer. So a lot of this stuff, is, it's not, I don't think the original intent was, like I said, to divide and conquer. I just think that there's resources that are required to handle certain calls for service, um, and that's really what the intent was. I think it's kind of become perverted and skewed to the mindset of some agencies and some people and some leaders that, hey, you know, it's us versus us, and, and we need to hold that similar line. But that's not my mindset, and there's a lot of, of other law enforcement officers that don't have that militarized viewpoint. You know, they really did go into it for the greater good. They really did go into it because they wanted to help the community. They went into it to be a service to others. Um, and I think that the people that are good and bad in every sector, you're going to get some people that are bad, and the highlight is going to focus on those people. You know, I've long been involved in philanthropic organizations. Um, I would say since the age of 10, starting with the, the Leo Club in Southern California. So my mindset was always towards the heart of service, and that's what my focus is in policing. So you're just going to have a certain sector of people that have that mindset of militarized, and you're going to have that certain sector of people that are social workers, and you're going to have that certain mindset of people that are more towards administration and business-minded, towards budgeting and law enforcement. There's going to be a genre and a niche for every person, right? So you can't look at law enforcement as a whole and say that we're all the same.
1: Right, and I think that's so important to remind people, especially um, and during these times when there's so much tension. And, you know, it's something that we try to do on Police to Police is try to give the human aspect, you know, and humanize law enforcement officers because um, it is easy to obviously let tensions rise, be frustrated, but... Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are all just humans, and I think sometimes that polarization tends to dehumanize each yeah. other, and that's when the initiation of violence seems to escalate. So um, unfortunately, we got to wrap this up. It's been wonderful talking with you. Uh, I, we did do a, a podcast last week with another ex-cop from uh, mm-hmm. LAPD. I'm pretty sure I shared that podcast with you. Jody. And um, when we ended that conversation, we asked him uh, what he thinks three bullet point solutions could be to fixing all of this. So uh, not to put you on the spot here, but is there any, like maybe possibly three solutions that you could think of off the top of your head that could actually be effective to maybe quell some of the police violence in America? Well, there's, there's
2: absolutely three bullet points, but you know, there's, you have to have a vision whenever it comes to making a change and a positive impact um, in your community. There has to be uh, an analysis um, of what's occurred, uh, how it became that way. Um, You know, that would be step one. Step two would be what are the changes that um, we could roundtable and get from the community that they feel are going to impact those changes in a positive light. And three, you have to take action. Right? So you've got to push those actions forward. That analysis is going to determine you know, the needs of the community, and then you have to push that action forward. So, so I can't really bullet point three exact things that are going to make those changes. I can only um, say that those three bullet points are going to have to be, again, the, the, you know, analyzing the past and the present. Um, getting a consensus from the community as to what they feel is going to work best through round tabling. And three, taking those actions to push forward the the consensus to make that change. So, you know, there has to be change makers, there has to be players in the market that will push through those positive changes. And so you have somebody in each market of society in the United States, you're not going to see change. You're going to have a lot of floundering and you're going to have a lot of you know, um, rhetoric in so many different markets, and you're not going to come to a conclusion. So it really needs to start with ground floor, um, you know, panels being appointed at every agency across the nation to round table and come to a solution and then push those solutions forward. But if you just keep having infighting and writing, that action is never going to go anywhere. You're just going to have a cyclical, uh, you know, event like we're seeing now, where people are frustrated. They've come to the forefront. They have these riots. People have to react, and they're using, you know, brutal force to react to the riots, and then you're back where you started again. So it's never going to solve anything. We have to sit down and talk.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And I was going to say that that's a another solution is is what we're doing right here, where you're reaching out to us, and we're reaching out to you. Even though we have, uh, you know, our our views might differ a a lot of different uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, Actually, way less than I thought, you know, before we had this podcast. Uh, But yeah, and that's why, you know, we had we sat down here, we had this communication, and now we know, you know, like we really have so much in common. We see the same problems, and the more we talk about this, the more the more we can reach a possible solution to where you know we don't have the thin blue line protecting itself we don't have you know people hating police we can get back to where there's a a balance amongst things before before this escalates into something that we that you know that gets out of control and i'm i'm uh, I'm really glad you came on and um i think jason and johnny had a really awesome uh time on this podcast it was uh it was super informative jody i mean seriously that was uh really eye-opening and I, i i thank you for coming on our podcast
2: you're welcome.
3: Thanks
1: for having me. Yeah, glad to have you uh, training people rather than uh, some other folk out there within law enforcement. That's certainly <laughs> a positive and uh, leaves me with some hope.
2: Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, and I hope,
0: I hope that uh, things turn around for you and you're you know able to keep your career because we need more officers like you on the force.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, tell Rich we said hi, and thank you so much for your time, Jody.
2: All right. Have a great day, guys.
1: You too.